Let's pray. Father, help us now. Uh, We're coming before this great table. This great feast. Where saints throughout all the ages have come and dined. And Father, You have never failed to feed Your people. You've never failed to give them truth that sustains, truth that strengthens, truth that brings joy and encouragement and hope, truth that corrects what is wrong so that it may be made right, truth that guides us into Your presence with worship and thanksgiving. And Father, we ask that as You have done down through all of history, that You would do for us this morning. Spread Your table. Feed us from it. Holy Spirit, preach a better sermon. Apply to every life that which we need to hear. Because we are eternally dependent upon You, Lord Jesus. You are the living Word. This is Your written Word. And so now work together through it. And feed us by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget one of the most harrowing experiences I had as a a young college student was working up in the mountains of North Carolina for two summers. And to get to the camp where I was working involved no small number of miles on hairpin turns. These are the type of turns that you see on television when they're filming a car commercial and they're wanting to show just how well this car can handle tight turns and hairpin places in a road that looks like a snake who's been knotted up. And one evening we were coming back to the camp after a a foray into Asheville, North Carolina, about a 40-mile drive from the camp that was quite remote, and I was assigned to ride in a car full of College-age girls, which may give you some pause to imagine my harrowing experience that followed. We were coming around curves and there are signs everywhere warning you to slow down because the curves were literally in some places complete U's with steep falling away on either side of the road. And the girl I was that was driving the car I was riding in decided that those signs were not necessarily something to to guide her driving by, and so we missed one of those curves. She jammed on the brakes, and we slid off to the side of the road through the gravel. Thankfully, we didn't go any further. But I remember thinking, you know, those signs are there for a reason. (laughs) Especially at night, they're there for a reason. Slow down and pay attention to where you're driving. The Bible is like that warning sign. Signs are not a curse. Signs are not uh, meant to get in your way of having a good time. They, they are a blessing. In, in fact, they're life. They're preserving of life. And Jude is essentially one large series of signs. It's given for every believer to read and to take heed of. Warning! Danger! Stay away! 
Drive with your eyes wide open. So this morning we want to hear from another one of those road signs. Not because God puts it there to confuse us or to make life seem dreary and dull, but because He loves us and desires to protect us, much as we would protect our own children by telling them things like, Stranger, danger. God says, false teacher, danger. Beware, be careful. And so we read in Jude 14 and through verses 16 this morning, these words. It was also about these men, these same men mentioned in verse 4, these certain persons who crept in, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And we need to hear the Word of God as a warning sign this morning on the road of life as we journey home toward heaven. The Word of God is the blessing that we need, and it is a blessing this morning particularly in that it warns us against the perils of those who crept in unaware. Jude gives us this morning two realizations that you need to see on this road sign. Two things. Not only the shape of the road that's ahead, but the speed at which it is safe to take it. He wants you to see two things about these false teachers that are warning signs for you to take seriously. Now, before we begin, we need to address somewhat of the elephant in the room. Look at verse 14. Jude says it was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. And some of you have read that. Some of you have actually asked me about this specific verse in the past. And who is Enoch? And where do we read Enoch's prophecy? Because it's not found in Scripture. And so some people have looked at this and said, well, that's highly problematic. I mean, here's Jude. He's quoting from some you know, a book that, that we don't really know what it is or even really maybe know for certain, although I think we're pretty sure who Enoch was. There's debate on which Enoch it could have been. But we need to understand from the start what seems to be a confusing question and understand the answer to it. And in verses 14 and 15, Jude does quote from what is known as a pseudepigraphal book. A pseudepigraphal book. The book of First Enoch. And what is a pseudepigraphal book? A pseudepigraphal book are books that were written at the time that the Bible was written. Not inspired, but again, as I said last week, possessing some historical value to them. They give some sense of the, the, the history and the customs and the culture and the way people spoke. You can buy a two-volume set from... Uh, places like Christian Book Distributors. I'm sure it's on Amazon as well. And simply entitled The Pseudepigrapha. And they're two big volumes that I keep on my shelf. And they're both about yay big. They take up quite a bit of real estate. And the print's really small in them. But it's a catalog of things like the book of First Enoch. Books that the early church certainly was familiar with. They would have read those books. They would have been aware of those books. They would have understood the history told in those books, but not necessarily regarded them as 
inspired texts. In fact, in the history of the church, we don't find any group that has ever considered the book of First Enoch as inspired. The Jews did not consider it, consider it to be inspired. The Roman Catholic Church never considered it to be inspired. And Christianity, as we understand the evangelical Christian faith that we are part of, we have never understood it to be inspired either. Nevertheless, God in His infinite wisdom allows Jude and inspires this book and preserves this book for us. And He does so even with the quote in the book. And we know who Enoch was. I think this is not a, a confusing thing. Enoch was a seventh generation man that really lived, a seventh generation from Adam. And we find his account in Genesis chapter 5, 21 and 24. And what do we know about Enoch? We know that he was a godly man. We know that he walked with the Lord so intensely and so closely that the Lord took Enoch. He didn't die. That can only be said about one other man in the entirety of Scripture, and that was Elijah. And so Enoch finds himself really in rarefied company. He was a man of, of great integrity, a man of great godliness. And the Jewish people, as a result of him being taken along with Elijah, had great reverence for him. And so anything that would have been tr transmitted down through the years of oral tradition, remember that the children of Israel... Everything they learned, the entirety of the Old Testament, until the very end of it, was passed down by words. Oral tradition, oral tradition. It wasn't until much later that they began to write things down and preserve them in writing on scrolls and tablets and those sorts of things. It was largely a hearing society. And so the, the traditions of Enoch had come down and it was... Uh, said that Enoch had prophesied uh, about these men, these types of men, not the specific men in Jude, but these types of men. And certainly, everything that Enoch says could be validated with inspired Scripture in other places. So we know it's not off base. It's not doctrinally incorrect. It is just an observation of life. And to be honest, anybody with two eyes and a thinking mind can see what Enoch saw. There are going to be people who are going to come and they are going to do these things. Tom Schreiner points out in his commentary that the Jude does not use here the typical New Testament formula of it is written. Notice he doesn't say that. That is, that is uh, the, the designation that New Testament writers gave for inspired Scripture. So obviously Jude understands this is what I'm Quoting here from Enoch is illustrative, it's an illustration, but it is not inspired. I don't think Enoch was inspired. I don't think God spoke to Enoch in this way while he was living on this earth. But it is helpful as a historical record to know that going all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, these type of people have been present and at times even prevalent in the history of the people of God. Again, it doesn't change anything in the book as far as the content. It's not new doctrine. It's not new truth. But it can be helpful and useful. And obviously, Enoch is on to something here because Jude is dealing with the same thing that, that Enoch dealt with and that Enoch and Noah in their day saw. The wickedness of men. 
And so Jude finds it useful to, to pick a notable figure, a, a respected figure among the Jewish people and say, don't you remember that, that even Enoch warned people in his day that these kind of people exist? And they are going to sneak in unaware. And you've got to be careful. And you need to guard your church. You need to guard your life. And so it would have carried an exceptional weight with the people just from the standpoint that Enoch was a revered and respected statesman, we might say, in our day and in our age. But in, if, if you're still uncomfortable, let me assure you that this is not the only time the Bible quotes uninspired writings. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, Paul quotes the pagan poet Eratus while he's on Mars Hill. Does that mean that Eratus is inspired? No, not at all. Paul is simply making a point that the people would have understood. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you this. So the Bible does allow at times such quotations that are not necessarily inspired. But here's where we have to land, brothers and sisters. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit inspired every word of the book of Jude. If he had not wanted this quotation in the book of Jude, he would not have allowed it. And so we rest on the confidence that Jude, and it is accepted that Jude is inspired literature, that God gave this book to the church. Therefore, this quotation begins to pale in uh, its weight as far as whether or not we should accept what Jude is saying here. Again, it's just historical and helpful to illustrate what was going on in a very real way in Jude's inspired letter, in Jude's specific situation. And so now let's get to the two realizations that I mentioned earlier. First of all, there's the realization that the judgment that these men are facing is going to be nothing new. The realization that judgment for people like this is nothing new. Remember, Jude has spoken quite eloquently and quite specifically about these men and the judgment that they are going to face. And we need to, with compassion and with brokenness, and yet with honesty and courage, say to ourselves and say to others that those who do not follow God, those who teach error and teach heresy and walk away from the truths of Scripture, there is judgment coming for them too. My fear is that the Christian church in, in the last number of years has become afraid to say so. We're seen as, you know, fighting fundamentalists, negative Nellies and critical people when we simply agree with what has been the pattern of God throughout Scripture. When there is false teaching and when there are false teachers who knowingly and willingly go along with these things, judgment is coming upon them and it is nothing new. We're not reinventing the wheel. Jude is not saying anything that what God has carried out throughout the entirety of human history. When individuals tragically end up in hell, it will not be because they have not been warned. Jude has warned them. Jude has warned them not to listen to the teachers who will lead them to that eternal destruction. You need to wake up and listen up and sober up and do not follow. And, and, and brothers and sisters, do not follow false teaching to the extent this is a small rabbit hole, but trying to find the truth in false teaching. Well, there's got to be some truth we can mine out of this. Jude says, remember their destruction and have nothing to do with them. Cut them off and cast them out. Because it, it's not 
profitable for you. Is there truth mixed with error in every false teaching? You'd better believe it. Someone once gave the definition of discernment. Definition of discernment is not being able to look at a, a complete uh, you know, stack of false teaching and say that's false teaching. Discernment is being able to look at something that looks true and seeing the error that's hidden in it. That's discernment. And all false teaching, at least in its initial phases, comes wrapped in a veneer of truth. And the Christian church is called to discern what is true and what is false and jettison what is an error. And we must be willing to do that and not simply say, well, you know, there's got to be some redeemable quality in that. If I may, it's like watching, and this is a a major thing, there's seminaries that offer courses in this, how to find redemptive themes in movies. You watch all kinds of garbage movies and fill your mind with all kinds of garbage things in order to find one redemptive theme. Why? Read your Bible. We're not called to to go around analyzing the culture and imbibing as much error as we can with the hopes of finding one kernel of truth. I can go to one place where it's all truth. I can find other men who teach the truth. Why wouldn't I listen to them instead of participating in false teaching in order, oh, maybe I'll find one good thing. Remember somebody argued with me years ago when the book The Shack, which I think the best thing that ever came out of the shack was the follow-up book to the shack somebody wrote i don't remember the name called burning down the shack because that's what needed to happen to the shack and somebody argues well i can understand the love of god in that book i said you can find the love of god in a lot of other places without all the blasphemy why would i read the shack that's just This is tragic, the thinking. And we need to be bold enough and with Jude say, listen, there is judgment coming for that. And it's not new. In fact, this is the pattern God has always used. In Scripture and throughout the witness of those who believe God, humanity has been warned and is being warned about judgment that is coming. And it's throughout history. The purpose is clear. Why would Jude do such a thing why would jude and why would god ultimately give us such a letter that just spends so much time warning us exodus chapter 20 and verse 20 we find the answer moses said to the people do not be afraid for god has come in order to test you and in order that you may fear him that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin why does jude speak with such Bold language about their judgment and bold language about their punishment so that you may fear God and not sin. So that you may see the error of their ways and not follow them and find yourself under the same judgment. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus himself says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In case we buy the world's narrative or even the cult, current cultural moment within evangelical Christianity that says Jesus only preached about love. No, Jesus said, fear him who is able to kill both soul and body and cast them into hell. Judgment is real, but it is not new. 
Judgment is serious. And as Christians, we must first of all take it to heart and say, I need to be warned. I need to be alert. I need to be discerning. I need to have my mind filled with biblical truth so that I can see error when it comes in and separate it out. And then I must warn those who are imbibing at the wells of error. I think what seems most objectionable to people in our own day is that Jesus will be the ultimate instrument of God's judgment. Notice what Jude says. The Lord came. Jesus Himself comes with thousands of His holy ones. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was love. The Bible says Jesus is actually going to come as a judge. The the picture of Jesus in Revelation is the complete opposite of what the church of Jesus Christ by and large wants to see today. At, At best, all they want to see Jesus for in Revelation is coming in a secret rapture to get them out of trouble and to get them out of suffering. And at the end of the story where Jesus is on his throne and everybody's happy. What they fail to see is Jesus is the warrior king. And he slaughters the nations when they reject him. And he defeats his enemies. And he carries a sword in his hand. And it goes forth from his mouth. And it is the word of God. And he judges by it. People don't want to hear that Jesus. But that's the exact Jesus that is coming. He came once in love and in meekness and humility. But he will return, as Jude says, with his thousands of holy ones, his holy angels, and they will enact judgment. Tom Schreiner again points out and says, distinguishes Jude from other variants of Enoch in that he uses the Lord here very specifically. The book of First Enoch, if you read that, Enoch does not say it's the Lord referring to Christ. Jude does. Jude says, you have this concept from Enoch that that God's going to come and judge. Let me tell you more specifically who's coming. God the Son. The one who died. The lamb who was slain will now return as a lion. He'll return on a white horse. And and so Jude gives a unique spin that, that focuses our mind to understand this is Jesus whom we're talking about. Jesus as the righteous judge. It's clear that Jude wants his warnings even to center in Christ. Remember how he began the letter. I wanted to speak to you about our common salvation that we have in Christ. I wanted to exalt that and and get to that. But I've got to warn you first. And even in the warning, he turns back to a focus on Jesus. But again, this is nothing new. It's a realization that judgment is coming and that judgment is nothing new. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, we read this. Because he has fixed a day in which he, meaning Christ, will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him, meaning Christ, from the dead. We see the picture very clearly in Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 and 15. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Capitalized F, capitalized T, referring to Christ. And in righteousness he does what? He judges and wages war. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. But Jesus is love. He does. And he is. But he loves his own glory and he loves his own purity more than he loves anything else. And he will not tolerate, tolerate rebels and those who reject him. And so he comes Ultimately, to judge those who not only reject him, but then pervert what he has said. Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Judas picked up on this critical theme, this critical truth, and is set to warn his readers regarding the fate of these false teachers and remind them it is not new. But in doing so, and warning them, it would warn everyone and it, it would comfort those. Think about this as well, brothers and sisters. It, it's comforting to hear a warning. Now I want to appeal to your flesh a little bit to illustrate this truth. But when you were a child growing up and your sibling had done something and you were in the midst of trouble for it. And then some detail emerged, a slip of the tongue from your sibling or some piece of evidence shows up and it really wasn't you that did it. And your parent turns around to your sibling and says, now you're going to get it. There's, there's some joy in that, isn't there? There's some comfort in that because, hey, I'm not going to be in trouble anymore. It's going to be okay. The real perpetrator is going to find justice. Remember that these early Christians, as Jude is writing this letter, just as Peter did, these false teachers are tormenting them. They're creating serious problems for these Christians. Some of it, within the church and of an emotional nature, some of it, no doubt, external to the church and of a physical nature. Persecution was real, and it's the false teachers that are part of the problem. And how comforting it would be to these early Christians to hear, God hasn't forgotten, and justice is not asleep. God's going to take care of your enemies. Okay, Lord, we can leave it in your hand. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Okay, that's a comfort to me. I'm not in the wrong. I'm not doing what's evil because I'm being persecuted uh, for doing what is actually righteousness. There is this warning. Jude says, hey, listen, God's going to deal with it. Jude, or Jesus, I'm sorry, spoke very similar words in Matthew chapter 25. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. He's going to judge them. Jesus warns us earlier against the great folly of sin and of continuing rebellion after being warned. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, Then He began to denounce the cities in which most of His miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. That's pretty significant. 
Remember, Sodom was just used as an illustration a few verses earlier. So they have the, the terrible judgment of God upon that city in their minds. And he's saying, if they had repented, even they would have been spared. That's significant. That, that testifies to the mercy and the power of, of the, the, the love of Christ and the forgiveness of God. But where there is no repentance, where there is no turning to Him, there will be judgment. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's a serious warning. That is a sobering reality that these false teachers continue in their sin just like Sodom continued in its sin, unrepentant, unchanging, unyielding, continuing to perpetuate that. It'll be better for Sodom than for you. How much more for us in our day, in our age, where we know the truth. Our problem is not that we don't have Bibles. Our problem is not that we don't have enough good material and literature to help us understand the Bible. Where there's errant teaching, it is blatantly so. It is willfully, I should say, so. And so Jude is concerned and he wants to he has comfort the Christians. Hey, it's gonna be okay. What torments you and what, what blasphemes your God will be dealt with, but to you who are participating, be warned. To you who are tempted to participate, be warned. It's going to be very, very difficult. Paul is concerned for his Jewish countrymen in Romans chapter 2 for the same thing. that The lack of, of immediate judgment seems to have made them feel like their sin was okay. That their unbelief was acceptable. And it lulled them into this apathetic state. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this to the Jewish people. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You know why God hasn't judged you? You know why God hasn't killed every sinner on this earth as soon as they're born because the kindness of god is meant to lead you to repentance to give you time to to bring you to salvation and he goes on in verse 5 and he says this but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart now listen to the warning you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. I thought Romans was all about the love of God and salvation. It is. But it first has to be about the bad news of sin and rebellion before the good news is actually good. And these things are being taught, no doubt, in Jude's day and it's leading people to confusion and fear. And so he, God, through Jude, I should say, puts out the warning sign. The Lord will not tolerate rebellion forever. He will not tolerate sin. He will not tolerate false teaching and the misrepresentation of God and the violation of the third commandment, taking the name of the Lord our God in vain attaching the name of God to things that simply are not true or consistent with His character and His message. 
Just because God hasn't done it yet doesn't mean that He won't. How many of you are familiar with the term normalcy bias? Well, that's never happened before, therefore it can't happen. Wrong. This is a sort of spiritual normalcy bias. God hasn't dealt with it yet in a way that at least I can see. Therefore, God may not deal with it or won't deal with it. Wrong. Jude says it's going to be dealt with. Just as in Enoch's day, just after Enoch, we have the account of Noah, just as at Sodom and Gomorrah, just as any other number of places in Scripture, God did deal with things. But don't, and even we as, as professing Christians, we need to be careful that it, just because God hasn't doesn't mean He won't. Ultimately, this rejection, particularly by those who knew the truth, which I'm convinced these false teachers knew the truth, they chose to reject it will yield in this abject judgment. Hebrews 10, 26-31 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Perhaps one of the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of Grace, capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Are you listening, false teachers? Are you listening, Christians? That's the warning sign to us. Don't tread their danger. Stay away. God will come. He will deal with His people and it won't be new. Again, think of all the examples even listed by Jude where God has done so. He came, He will come. That's how certain Enoch was in his day and Jude is in his day. That's how certain they are of God's judgment. It is coming. So much so that we can speak of it as it's already done. Uh, Enoch spoke about it and Jude speaks about dealing with false teachers in his day as if they had already been dealt with along with the ones in Enoch's day. It's not the only time Scripture uses that. In God and in the plan of God, things are so certain we can speak of future events as though they are already done even though they have not been carried out yet. Jesus in John chapter 17 in His high priestly prayer, He's not yet died, but what does He say to His Father? I have finished the work which You gave Me to do. It was as good as done. Why? Because He had decreed it and because He couldn't fail in it. Therefore, He could speak of it with that kind of certainty. It's the same thing here. These angels, remember what we read earlier uh, last week, uh, that these men mock things which they don't understand. Speaking of angelic beings, angelic majesties, they, 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 they play fast and loose with the devil and his fallen angels. They mock angels in general. 
And that band of created beings that have been mocked previously will be instruments of judgment in the hand of Christ. Matthew chapter 13, verse 39, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's funny now, it won't be funny then. It will be poetic justice on an eternal and worldwide and universal scale when God through Christ, sends His angels to judge them. Here's an interesting fact when Jude speaks of this judgment. The word in the Greek literally means to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing, to convict and convince them. This is terrifying. Though they know it now and reject it, and then become so hardened in it, they actually believe the lies that they are telling. There will come a point when the angels judge, they will cause them to know what they've done. They will bring them to a point of confession. That what is happening to me in this judgment, at this moment, is absolutely true and right. They will be forced to render a guilty plea. Just as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Adonai, Master to the glory of God the Father. Saints and sinners alike, before these angels destroy these false teachers and before they judge them with eternal fire, they will first convict them. It's legal terminology. In the court, you will be reckoned. You will be forced to reckon with your error and confess your wrongdoing. The judgment of God will never, listen to me, the judgment of God will never be met with accusations of error or injustice or mistrial. He's perfect. And His angels are perfect. When they judge, they will judge perfectly. He will be proven right in all that He has said and all that He is doing and all that is going to transpire. On that day, it will be confessed as being right. The totality of God's holiness will be seen in contrast to the sin and the rebellion and the error of those on trial. And they will confess that He is right and they are wrong. Notice what Jude says. Notice the totality of it. Verse 15, to execute judgment upon who? Look at your Bibles. All. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him do you hear the totality of this do you see this convincing and convicting and confessing point that jude is saying this 
judgment against error and those who've rejected Christ is so total, all, and of their ungodly. The word ungodly means to be irreverent, to be impious, to be blasphemous, to be sacrilegious. Jude says it's all going down. It's happened before, it will happen again. Take heart, Christian, but also take warning that you do not imbibe in it and follow it and fall away from the truth. That which has been birthed in rebellion and given every effort to demean him will be judged. And what stands out as Jude now transitions into the last phase of verse 15 and into verse 16, that it is their words that have created the righteous reaction and judgment of God. Not just their deeds, but it starts with their words. The realization, number one, that judgment is not new. But secondly, the realization that judgment is obvious. When God judges, it will be obvious why He has done so. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, Speaking to another group of false teachers. Again, I thought Jesus was love. You haven't read all your Bible. Or even better, I only believe the red letters. Ever hear anybody say that? Because the red letters are all about the love of Jesus, except for those parts where it's not. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus speaking, You brood of vipers! How can you being evil, speak what is good. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And that's the condemnation that we find in verse 16 of these false teachers. What fills their heart becomes abundantly obvious and becomes the clear manifestation of the cause of why they're being judged. And tragically, we have seen in the last few years an acceleration of teachers well-known teachers very popular teachers songwriters artists all of it falling away into abject error why it was in the heart all along it's been there it's not new and it becomes obvious these false teachers why they're going to why they're going to be judged look at verse 16 by the way There are two large categories in verse 16. Both of them are characterized by speech. The first half is this. They're grumblers. They find fault. They follow after their own lust. Secondly, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. What fills their heart becomes abundantly obvious and a clear manifestation of for the need for judgment. This echoes the exhibition of their depravity. And it's just become known by their actions, by their words. It's been in their heart all along. I want you to look at verse 7. And then verses 12 and 13. and verse 15, there is this conviction that happens. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited to be put on full display. Verses 12 and 13, the the examples here, the, the analogies of the false teachers, these are things you can see. It becomes obvious. They're like reefs. 
Unfortunately, you don't see it until it's too late and you see wrecked ships, winds, clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit, the sea casting up its disgusting foam that is their shame, stars that shoot through and then burn out. These are all their convictions. They're they're manifestations and it comes out of their mouth like, like the rattles on a rattlesnake. These verbal cues mentioned in verse 16 are a warning to anyone who has ears to hear. So I guess if there's any saving grace in a rattlesnake, and this is even hard for somebody in West Texas to admit, it's the rattles. Why? Because at least they warn you. They, they, they rattle and say, hey, here I am, get away. Their words are like rattles. Notice what he says, they're grumblers. They grumble, they complain. Proverbs likens the word that Jude uses here to one who whispers and keeps strife stirred up. They're just complaining all the time. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20. For, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. You ever known anybody like that? Just wherever they go, there's problems. And they leave one place and go to the next place. Because I said that the, the previous place had problems and then before long the, the, the new place has problems and, and you kind of start to think after a while, maybe the problem is you. And Judas saying this, Proverbs is saying, they're, they're whispers, they're grumblers. Wherever they go, they just keep things stirred up. They keep things going. They're grievance experts. They're always spreading the cancer of complaining and grumbling in order to keep strife in the air. Some people literally cannot survive without strife and controversy and drama and crisis. And Jude says, start looking. Wherever you find that, it's like if you hear a rattlesnake rattle, guess what's going to be there? Rattlesnake. We see strife constantly stirred up guess what there's going to be people there who are keeping it stirred up that's why paul says in romans chapter 16 to mark those people and avoid them paul would be even stronger and say put them out these are false teachers this is what they do it's not a great leap to see the parallel uh, with unbelieving israel already mentioned uh, in verse 5 Exodus chapter 16, verse 7, And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for He hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? What a tragic thing to be a nation characterized as grumblers. Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. That's not good. Numbers chapter 14, verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me, says the Lord? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Verse 29, listen to this. Put this on the evening news. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Even all your numbered men, that's the army. According to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, you who have grumbled against me. How does God feel about grumbling? He's going to litter the desert with their bodies. In truth, 
for the people of God, there's no room for grumbling. There's no room for complaining. But then again, we're not talking about the people of God here in Jude, are we? We're talking about the false teachers. These are not the true people of God and their grumbling proves it to be so. And that is why, why one of the, 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 the primary uh, issues of discipline in the New Testament church is dealing with those who sow discord and those who grumble and those who complain. Why? To be mean to them? No, because they don't belong. Grumbling and complaining in the people of God, that's contrary. You can't have both. You can't say, hey, I'm the people of God, but boy, we're a church, we're known by our grumbling and complaining. Not so. We have to deal with these things. And Jude says we are going to deal with these things because this is not the people of God. These are false teachers we're talking about. Hear the warning sign. Read it. They find fault. We have a simpler word for this in the Greek. We could translate it into the English as being discontent. Discontent people. They're not ever content with anything. You ever know anybody like that? Have you ever been like that? God spare us from a spirit of discontentment. You ladies in your ladies Bible say, I think it's one of the most important virtues you could study from Scripture is contentment. It's a mark of, a, of a, a genuine believer to be content. And these people are discontent. They are f- always finding fault, discontented with something. Just as grumbling, this term emphasizes a rejection of God, a, a, a grumbling against God in His plans, a discontentment with what He's provided for them. The difference, though, is mo- more overt than grumbling. Discontentment is a direct accusation. You did this to me. You didn't give this to me. You allowed this to happen. You made this happen. Jude says, when they start that, the rattlesnake is rattling. The warning sign is flashing at you in red light saying, too fast, too fast, slow down. There's a warning sign here. They found fault with God. They they criticize His revealed truth. They criticize His sovereignty. They're discontent with the way things have transpired in their life. And that's hard, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That's part of our natural fallen tendency is to complain. But, But realize this, that is also one of the areas we need to work and depend upon the Holy Spirit to push back against that and to fight that. Why? It's a mark of false teaching. They follow their own lust. This is, again, referring to some of their character traits that, that often, you know, and here's the thing, you can, you can be deceived by a rattlesnake. You can hear a rattle. Is it, is it that or is it this sound sometimes in nature, right? It, depending on how close you are. Once you get a certain place, there, you, there's no mistaking what it is, but sometimes there's, things that can sound like it, or what was that? And that can be words, the complaining, the grumbling. So You know anybody who can complain really skillfully without sounding like they're complaining? Or insult you without really insulting you? People are good with it. There are wordsmiths out there that can craft it, man. And so the words are one thing, but then you get to this point and they follow their lust. Okay, now we know. We don't just hear it, we see it. They follow their own lust. They live out the depravity of their heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately wicked or sick. Who can understand it? Nobody but God. 
These people begin to live out their heart. The worst advice you can ever follow is Disney's advice. Jimmy the Cricket. Jiminy the Cricket, whatever his name is. You know, follow your heart. Your dreams will go ah, straight into judgment. Refusal to follow God will inevitably lead to following our own desires and will open the door to directly accuse God. Now notice in closing what Jude goes on to say. That's one thing, but then here's a second category of speech. They speak arrogantly. Now we shouldn't be surprised that an individual whose life's goal is to satisfy their own fleshly lust would be arrogant people. You shouldn't be surprised at that. They're just so full of themselves. They're, they're narcissists of the first order. Their speech is an example of that. It draws attention to themselves. It, it obfuscates the truth. It hides the truth in clever words and confusing words and gives it the appearance of legitimacy and then manipulates people who are naive enough to follow them and listen to them. Brothers and sisters, as your brother in Christ, as your pastor, please exercise discernment in who and what you listen to. Just because it's under the label Christian on the podcast things doesn't mean it's Christian. Just because they hold a Bible in their hand and say that it means what it says and blah, 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 or whatever else that guy in Houston says doesn't mean he believes the Bible. And a million other examples we could list. Be careful. There are warning signs and you need to to listen for those. Listen to those who speak arrogantly. The Greek word means to be pompous, extravagant, haughty, smooth, you know. We, 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 we've raised, unfortunately, in evangelicalism today, a culture that values smooth communicators rather than truth speakers. Churches are packed to the gills with people who can speak it smoothly, man. But underneath the smooth glass that they create is a cauldron of wickedness. The New King James and the King James both translate this word arrogantly as swelling words they speak with swelling words (laughs) they're verbose they're good they're slick they use words and communicate in ways that make them look more spiritual and more knowledgeable in order to suck more people in well you know he's got all those degrees well you know he 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 knows all this stuff well you know he be careful not always a sign of godliness. And then they flatter, Jude says, for the, for the sake of their own advantage. They flatter people. They use people. People are nothing but a commodity to these false teachers. They're just using you. And oh, that we could say, where's the heart of the shepherds? They can't be bothered. They're in the green room, you know? Before church, they're in the green room. They can't be bothered to to talk to the people, to to carry the burdens of the people. They can't bother to know the people. They're too busy. Tragically, that's a a major thing in the culture we live in. I'm not just saying that facetiously or sarcastically. 
a friend of mine, some of you probably um, saw, it was been probably a month or two ago now, there was a, a little girl, I think 13 or 14 years old, stabbed to death brutally by a classmate in Florida. Big church steps in. One of my close friends had coached at that school and they said, we want you to do the funeral. He said, I went to the big church. They were all offended that they didn't get to, you know, have the funeral because it was going to be televised nationally. And I mean, it was a big deal. And he said, I got to the church and they put me in a green room. This is, this is where our, our pastors stay before we go out on stage. He said, what is this? What is this? You're just using people for your own advantage. You're puffed up. You've got swelling words. It's a show. You're not shepherds. You're showmen. He actually had the gall to tell the pastor that, <laughs> which I loved. He said, you want to know why they asked me to do the funeral and not you? Because I actually cared. I've been over there crying with them, weeping with them, serving them. And you haven't. You've been over here in the green room. Be careful. Watch it. They, they, they manipulate people from everything, from financial gain to sexual gain, or just to have power and notoriety. Their own lusts drive them to use people rather than to minister to people and to be there for people. They're an ivory tower. They're... They're, they're gated teachers who cannot be bothered with anything that does not advance their own personal agenda. The very opposite of Jesus Christ. Who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You want to talk about the ultimate no exchange the very opposite of quid pro quo, the Lord Jesus Christ. He stood nothing to gain. He had all the glory of heaven. And He lays it aside. Why? To come and die for a bunch of people who hated Him. While we were sinners, Christ died. Not after we were cleaned up and loved Him and wanted to sing songs about Him. No, while we were enemies with God, He died for us. What a contrast to these false teachers. What a contrast to false teaching. And so what is clear here is this, brothers and sisters, that in the end, Christ, who has been wronged most of all by the rejection of these people, by their blasphemous rejection of Him, by their blasphemous uh, exaltation of themselves, by the living out of their own lust, He will appear, and when He does, it's all going to be made right. And it won't be sinful vengeance. It will be righteous judgment. It will be good that they have been judged. It will be to God's glory that they have been eliminated. It will be a restoration of what God created the world to be before Satan caused its fall. A world free from evil and sin and error and falsehood. The King will come and He'll restore that kingdom. We must be warned rather than listening to them to turn to Christ. Because their words will damn you. 
their flattery and their smoothness of speech will lead you to the same judgment. And it will be a shameful day when having known the truth that we find ourselves in the end in judgment with them because we knew better. The warning signs on the road were there. The rattlesnakes rattles were there. We just didn't want to listen. We need to be so careful, brothers and sisters. Do not follow them because they do not follow or proclaim the biblical Christ. But the Scriptures always will. So follow the Word of God and follow those who follow the Word of God. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow other godly men as they follow Christ. And then when you're following, you grab somebody behind you and bring them along too. And let's all go to the truth. Let's all go to Christ together. But don't fall prey to the error of these false teachers. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we live in a day when it's so easy to have such false teaching perpetuated. It's everywhere. It comes through books. It comes through podcasts it comes through websites it comes through uh, any number of ways lord i can't even imagine what jude or his readers would have thought had they lived in our day it was bad enough in their own but we're here lord and we need help and it's no accident that we live at the time in history that we're living but we do want to stop this morning and confess we need your spirit to grant us true biblical God-honoring discernment that will lead us to Christ, not away from Christ. And cause us not to recoil at the stringency of the judgment that is coming. Help us to understand why that judgment is coming and in understanding why, we'll understand how it could be so severe. And we'll confess that it will be right too. Because we have violated you. We violated your law. And your word. Father, I pray that there would be no person who leaves this building today who has not surrendered their life, confessed their sin, and sought your salvation, Lord Jesus. Because without Your saving work in us, without Your forgiveness of our sins, without Your giving us a new mind to to understand the truth, we will fall. Not possibly, but certainly. So Father, if there's one here who's not been saved by Your Son from their sins, save them today, I pray. Cause them to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to confess their sin and to run to Christ knowing that He forgives and He renews and redeems and makes what is fallen and broken and old new again. We pray that You would do that, Father, for Your own glory. Give us discernment. Give us a love for truth in the week to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.